MailChimp presents. I felt like I could say whatever I wanted and nobody could hurt me. And that was a time where I would have witnesses if anybody tried to do anything to me. And so I could talk freely because I was on a stage and I had the microphone. In the early 1990s, Kathleen Hanna went to a lot of punk rock shows where the crowd was a sea of men. And so when she stepped on stage herself as the lead singer of the band Bikini Kill, her goal was to change that audience and to make the whole underground music scene more feminist. Then she got famous and unintentionally became a punk feminist figurehead in a rapidly growing movement known as Riot Girl. She knew she'd be threatened by the male-dominated punk scene that she worked so hard to change but she did not expect to be torn down by other women who identified as feminists. And when Bikini Kill broke up, Kathleen had to decide whether she still wanted to keep making music or whether it would be too painful. I'm Ann Friedman, and this is Going Through It, a show about how hard it can be to figure out when to quit and when to keep going. On this episode, what happens when you create a supportive, nurturing community and then it turns against you? What is your first memory of being on stage and performing? Well, when I played Annie in grade school. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> what else is there to say after that? I guess that's just sort of How like, old were you? I was nine. Uh-huh. And at that age, did you think, <laughs> I want to do this forever? I love this so much? Yes. How did you know? I mean, the first time when I started singing, it felt like I could like make a rainbow on a wall by staring at it. When I started realizing, like, hey, I want to sing, I want to stop, like, helping all my friends who are in bands, like, all these guys, I was, like, always, like, making them stickers and helping them with their album art and, like, you know, going to their practices and, like, but I was, like, not doing anything myself because I, I did performance art. And so I was, like, well, next logical step is just to do a song. Like, if if you kind of have enough guts to get up by yourself and do spoken word, you know, it's, like, singing is kind of, like, no big deal. It's in this band called Amy Carter. Me and my friends had started a feminist art collective in Olympia, Washington, in, like, an old garage. And what did the garage look like? Like, what did the space look like? Well, when we first got it, there was a guy living there. And actually, I heard that he was about to get arrested and go to jail. (laughs) So I contacted the owner, got it for really cheap. It had those things, you know, that you, like, crank the car up on. Uh Uh-huh. Like a a lift or a jack? It had two of them. Mm -hmm. And we had to get those removed. (laughs) We didn't just have to start a band. We had to, like, create the space, literally build the stage. It was kind of like the only way that we would have enough guts to do this is because we had this space. Why do you think it was necessary to sort of do it in your own space? It's funny because my initial response is like, oh, I want to tell you what happened later. Because later I realized why I felt nervous. Like, I felt nervous kind of on an intuitive level, I think, of, like, I just, I didn't feel safe or confident enough to, like, go to some regular club. You know, unless you're on a major label or something, women didn't really make music. And And at that point, did you feel like you were already using your music to make a feminist statement? I mean, I felt like I was was expressing myself, you know. And a big thing for me that happened was I started working at a rape relief domestic violence shelter called Safe Place. And you know, when you're 19 and you're doing direct services work with women who have been in domestic violence relationships for 40 years 
and you're doing intakes in the middle of the night where they're, you know, for the 12th time trying to get away from, from their husbands or their partners, it's like, what do you do with that? Really started expressing stuff that I needed to get out in order to just survive. To sing and talk about like domestic violence and, and rape and stuff like that on stage in an atmosphere where no one was talking about that at the time felt very, it felt like, mm-hmm. I want to hear somebody saying this in the club. When I got back to Olympia to finish my last like four credits, Toby Vale, who's a drummer and singer, she was like, let's start a band. And you were like, hell yeah, I'm in? Yeah, okay. of course. So you and Toby formed the band Bikini Kill, which kind of coincided with the start of the Riot Girl movement, this punk rock feminist movement. Did you feel at the time that you were doing something rooted in feminist politics? Like, was that your intention? Toby and I were pretty much best friends at that point. And when we started Bikini Kill and we were reading all this feminist theory and talking about it. And as a band, we wanted to take over punk rock for feminists. For me as a human being, I came to feminism like a lamp to God. I wanted to turn these male-dominated spaces on their head. Like, I wanted to find a way that I could walk into a club where they were playing, like, the mentors, finder, feeler, fucker, forgetter as we walked in and turn that into a place where women felt welcome. What did it feel like when you first started performing live with Bikini Kill? Playing felt really cathartic to me. It felt really amazing, and people didn't know what to expect. Like, when we first started playing, they had no idea how confrontational I could be. Suck my left one! I was just very shocked by the reaction, because I, I thought people would be super psyched. I was like, everyone's going to be super psyched that that girl is talking about feminism in punk rock or in the underground music scene because, you know, there's not that many people who do that. But a lot of the people that I encountered in Bikini Kill were, like, guys who were just total assholes. I met the guys who were screaming, show us your tits. Or more commonly, I just got shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up and play. I seriously started thinking my name was, like, shut up and play. But... You know, when guys would heckle me, I would, like, make fun of them, you know. And if guys were messing with other audience members in a way that was, you know, violent and awful, I we usually didn't have security, and I would walk out there and physically throw them out the door myself. To me, it just felt like that's what a normal person does. Like, right. You know, like, if somebody's, like, telling you to shut up, you, you tell them to go fuck themselves and that you're the one with the mic and they can go to hell. I felt like I could say whatever I wanted and nobody could hurt me. And that was a time where I would have witnesses if anybody tried to do anything to me. And so I could talk freely because I was on a stage and I had the microphone. I've heard your lyrics and they're definitely not intended for a crowd of angry men. So what did you do to get more women in the room? I got addresses of every single girl that came to our show, women that came to our show, And then we'd send postcards, like, personally inviting them and be like, bring your friends. Like, trying to also change the audience. We were very conscious that what was happening in the audience was just as important as what was happening on stage. 
And that was a lot of asking the girls to come to the front. Anybody is fucking with you at this show, come up front and sit on the stage. Were they, like, having to push men aside? Like, what did that, like, I'm picturing, like, a parting of the waves like Moses, which I know was, like, not how it was. But, like, that's for some reason I can't get that image out of my head. Like, what did it look like to you, like, from where you were standing when that would happen? There was no parting of the waves. (laughs) Um, The thing is, it was very different over time. In the beginning, it was, like, a lot of befuddlement, like, when we would say girls to the front, people were like bummed. And a lot of like, how dare you do that? You mm-hmm. know, it was like, how dare you? But then a couple would come. Mm-hmm. But we didn't just do that so that girls could see us play our, our instruments and hopefully start bands. We were also doing it for our safety because we were also women in an unsafe position. And we needed those front rows to be women. Right. And sometimes we would ask them to walk us out to our van, like be our escorts. But then it started to become a shtick that people expected. And so people would yell out to me to, to do it. And I had started to really have issues with what did that mean to the amount of color in the room? What did it mean to, you know, butch lesbians who were often mistaken for boys? Like, there was just a lot of questions that I had about essentializing the term girl. And that was part of the reason why I stopped doing it. It was also like, then do I say, okay, all the gay kids up front too, all the short kids up front. Mm -hmm. Like, it started to be like, oh, I could have this whole list of like anybody with an income below, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like, it could have just been super ridiculous. At the end of the night after a show, what did it feel like? Usually directly after girls and women were coming up to me and sharing their stories with me. The fact that women who wouldn't call a rape relief place or domestic violence shelter would talk to me. You know, I worked at, I was a counselor, like I had training. I mean, I wasn't like an official, like accredited counselor, (laughs) but um, I was trained by Safe Place. And so I just started using those skills, you know, after shows and then later on tour. And I felt like I needed to keep it together and help as best as I could. I felt sad. I felt sad. After shows, I felt empty, sad, and weightless. What got you to the next point after having a night like that? I guess what what got me to the next point was, like, I loved touring. Like, I loved touring. When I was a kid, we used to drive across the country every year in a van and, like, go and camp and just picking KOAs to stay at. Do they still have KOAs? Oh, yeah. Okay. Campground of America, but with a K. Is that right? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it's a little sketchy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was really used to touring, and so I really loved touring. And I remember putting my hand on the window one time in our travel all. That's what it was called. <laughs> it was like part van, part Jeep. And looking out the window and being like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So as the Riot Girl movement got more recognition and, like, Bikini Kill became a symbol of Riot Girl and you were at the front of Bikini Kill, how were you treated? In my small town, I was a big deal, you know? Like, in my early 20s, thrown into, like, the national media, that can be really hard, especially, I think, if if you're a woman or a person who's marginalized. I felt very pulled out from my community, and I really didn't like it. People seem so angry at me. And on stage, things started to get so violent that I think everyone on my band was like, you're going to get hurt. Like, someone's going to hurt you. Like, it started to feel like 
Like, it just was ramping up to such an extent. It was like, someone's going to do something. So I was really, like, kind of at the end of my rope. Were there a series of moments when you were like, maybe this has got to end? I felt that feeling, like, constantly. I was just on my period, and I went to Safeway to get some Neapolitan ice cream. And I had a thing of, like, super tampons and a thing of Neapolitan ice cream. And I ran into this girl who's, like, a punk girl from the scene. And right to my face, she said, you're ruining the scene. You're a stuck-up bitch. How dare you? I don't speak for her. And, And I didn't ever want to speak for other women. I was just speaking for myself. I'm fine if people don't want to call themselves a feminist. I don't give a shit. You call yourself whatever you want. But it was like, that started happening a lot. Women coming up to me and saying, all I see in you is man hate. You're giving women a bad name. And when it was other, you know, women in the scene, it was really, it was just really painful. The only way I could please them is if I went away. Mm -hmm. If I just disappeared. So was there, like, a, like, discuss the relationship style talk where, like, you and your bandmates sat down and... Hell no. You were like, yeah. How, no. So, so, like, how did, how did it, how did things, like, finally, like, when was the point where you were, where you personally were like, okay, that's it? I mean, the moment that I said goodbye to Olympia, I was actually the karaoke hostess and I sang, I will always love you. And then I flipped off the whole town and walked out. And then me and the bass player, Kathy, just, like, drove across the country with my cat in a U-Haul. And it was over. I think I sent an email. Just because I wanted people to be able to move on with their lives. And so in that van speeding east, were you, like, goodbye forever music? Or, like, what did you think your next thing would be at that point? I wasn't really thinking. I was just like, I got to get out of here. And my best friend, Tammy Ray, who I'd been in Amy Carter with, lived in North Carolina with her girlfriend, Kaya. And... I was like, as soon as I get out of this band, I'm going to move to wherever she is. So I did that. I lived in this attic room in North Carolina in the summer with no air conditioning and then no heat in the winter for like 100 bucks. I just cried for a year. I was just really emotionally trying to figure out how to stay alive because Bikini Kill was my family. It was everything to me. Everything. My whole life was that band. All the chickens were in the basket. And I had very little life outside of that band. So it was like getting a divorce from four people. But one of them was actually me. Like I was divorcing Kathleen from Bikini Kill. And who was I when I wasn't Kathleen from Bikini Kill? So how did you answer that question for yourself? And how did you go from your friend's house in North Carolina and like crying all the time to the next stage of your life? I knew I wanted to be with my friend Johanna Feynman, and she was in New York. And my boyfriend, who I was very much in love with at the time, was also in New York. And so I left North Carolina for New York. And I was like, I want to play music with you, Johanna. We, we borrowed a practice space from someone. We started meeting. So we started writing new songs. And we talked at length about what had happened with Riot Girl and what it, or just in the punk feminist world and how people were tearing each other apart in unproductive ways. I just remember looking at her one day 
in the practice space. And I was like, what if we just stop thinking about this shit? Like, what if we just, like, stop freaking out about all this bad stuff? And, like, we just say thank you for everything that we've been given and for all of the, like, activists and artists who we love so much who inspire us. And I was like, why don't we just focus on that? And so we wrote this song called Hot Topic. And we were like, this is a snapshot of today. People who we like. Let's make a list. Let's put it in a song. Call it a day. How did it feel that day when you wrote that song or when you recorded that song? It felt amazing. I mean, Johanna worked, so she would go to work and we would write, and then I would just stay in the practice space and keep working. So I just did like tons of takes. And I think I stayed all night one night and just worked and worked and worked. And I just remember being like, this is what I want it to sound like. This is exactly what I heard in my head. And I'm making it happen. And that really was the turning point for me of like, I'm going to do this again. It was seriously, it was turn your frown upside down. <laughs> it really was. It was like, it was like feminist turn your frown upside down style nonstop. So you and Johanna call your band La Tigra. What was it like performing with her and how was it different from Bikini Kill? It just felt great. I mean, it was like, we have what we need for our shows. We had a tour manager. I'd never had a tour manager or a booking agent or any of that before. And it made my life a lot easier. I could choose when I wanted to engage with people and when I didn't. And, you know, really in that band, I stopped looking to the audience to love me. You can start to get so measured. But if you sit there and try to become perfect before you say anything, or you start censoring yourself before you even write the song, then you stop being an artist and you stop doing stuff. And it's like, I think it's really important to to keep going. And I wanted to be one of those people. And I felt like the best way to do it was through music. And making music with, you know, one of my best friends in the world. Kathleen Hanna still makes music with some of her best friends. In 2016, her band The Julie Ruin released the album Hit Reset. These days, she's an ambassador for Peace Sisters, an organization that sends young women to college. And get this, Kathleen is reuniting this year with Toby Vale and Kathy Wilcox to play their first shows since 1997 as Bikini Kill.
Going Through It is an original series from MailChimp, and I'm your host, Anne Friedman. I'm tuned like a gorgeous grand piano by producers Eleanor Kagan, Megan Tan, Gabrielle Lewis, and Claire Tai. This episode was edited by Joel Lovell. It was scored and mixed by Hannes Brown. Thanks to Max Linsky, who's out there spinning in the at-brosphere, and everyone at Pineapple Street Media.